This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, ready to study the Word. Is there a problem with the sound? It doesn't sound right. No. I'm not getting feedback somehow. So. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you that we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who fills us. That he is the one who instructs us and guides us into all truth and illuminates our minds to the teaching of your word that we might respond to it with positive volition, that he transforms it to epinosis in our souls, that we might use it and apply it as divine good, that we might advance and grow spiritually. pray that as we study your word today that you might give us a greater understanding of the dimensions of our salvation and what you have done in order to uh, deal with the sin problem. We thank you for this and we pray that you challenge us with these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We have been studying the death of Christ on the cross. Following our study of the trials of Christ, we have looked at different aspects of his death on the cross. We began by looking at the aspect, the physical side of his crucifixion, the fact that he suffered extreme physical agony both leading up to as well as on the cross. He was crucified about nine o'clock in the morning and he was on the cross for approximately six hours. But it was only during the time of darkness from 12 noon to 3 p.m. that he uh, died as a spiritual substitute for our sins. It was during the first three hours, though, he did suffer immense physical pain and anguish, which was nothing compared to what he went through during the time that he was separated judicially from God the Father as he bore the pain or bore the penalty for our sins in his body. Then, after looking at the doctrine of the physical death of Christ, we looked at uh, the reaction of the unbelievers to him on the cross. We examined the sayings of the observers who maligned and ridiculed him as he hung there on the cross and saw that what they said was representative of the types of attacks 
unbelievers have come up with over the ages against Christians and against Christ, demonstrating the fact that they have a, a criterion for truth that is not objective but is subjective and based on their own limited rationalism and empiricism because they are suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. Then we looked last time, two weeks ago, at the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. And two of the more important um, references, uh, statements contain references related to our topic this morning, and that is the use of the phrase, it is finished, when he had finished, or when his work on the cross was complete. Then he said other things. The last three statements on the cross took place after her, He was finished with his work on the cross, all of which occurs before he died physically. And now today, I want to cover the final aspect in relationship to his work on the cross, which is the doctrine of the blood of Christ. The doctrine of the blood of Christ. Before we get started, I want to read these verses from 19, John 19, 31 through John 19.37. This is after he has died physically. We read, The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus... When they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may also, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Now, for the most part, we will not look at those verses in detail until next time when we look at the aftermath of the crucifixion, his death and his, or his removal from the cross and his burial. But there are two verses in the middle of this section that do relate to our subject, and that is verses 34 and 35, when the soldiers pierced his side, And it was then that blood and water came out. Now, the reason this is an issue is because there has been a a lot of confusion over the concept or the phrase, blood of Christ, in the Scriptures. It is a crucial phrase. It is either the phrase, blood of Christ, which is used only four times in the New Testament, or the concept of His blood, or uh, talking about... uh, lengthy discussions such as Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10, which talk about Christ's blood, are uh, intimately related to the whole concept of salvation. So the problem is whether or not the physical blood of Jesus Christ, his plasma, hemoglobin, red and white blood cells, were unique, incorruptible, and the efficacious element of his saving work on the cross. Now, there are many through church history who have taught that. For example, this view can be traced as early as Chrysostom, who lived from 347 to 407 A.D. Luther held this view. Calvin held this view. 
Uh, there were many others that have held this view down through the ages um, <clears throat> that somehow Christ's body was drained physically of all the blood, that he, he bled to death on the cross. In the Middle Ages, there was a mystical theology that developed around this, the idea of a heavenly tabernacle and the, the use of uh, or misuse of Hebrews 9.12, uh, misunderstanding of Hebrews 9:12, which reads that that uh, Christ entered into a entered into the holy place by His own blood. It was translated with His own blood. So the analogy was that just as the, that they held to it, just as the high priest was able to enter into the holy of holies by carrying uh, a basin of the sacrifice, sacrificial blood from the altar that Christ carried a basin of his own incorruptible uh, blood into the heavenly holy of holies. That there was a heavenly ark that he poured his uh, physical blood onto. This was developed throughout the Middle Ages, and it does not have any basis in the Scriptures. But we will need to look at it in detail. Among... um, Many Protestant fundamentalists, they have a tendency to take the phrase blood of Christ in a very strict, literal fashion. And so it has sort of become a, a, a touchstone of controversy. I remember back uh, when I went to seminary back in the 70s that this was an issue for some conservatives and fundamentalists over, over the exact meaning of the blood of Christ. And they took it very literally. You see this in some hymns like... There's a fountain filled with blood uh, from, flowing from Emmanuel's veins, and you see this, this kind of physical imagery. There have also been some uh, various Protestant writers who have argued that, that passages that talk about the resurrected Christ as having uh, flesh and bone, there's no mention of flesh and blood, just flesh and bone, and that when Christ returns at the second coming, he, has, he is white. Uh, signifying an absence of blood. That's the way they stretch their exegesis is the fact that the resurrected Christ has no blood. Uh, He's white, which indicates that he has no blood, that all of his blood was drained at the cross. And so they have uh, uh, put a strong emphasis on the physical blood of of, of Jesus Christ. And, of course, as I stated earlier, the passage that uh, many go to is in Hebrews 9:12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by and see in the Greek it's a dia plus the genitive. And the preposition when the dia plus the genitive is used, it indicates means. And sometimes this gets translated basis. And I think that would give us the best understanding of this. It is on the basis of his own blood that he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And see, they would come along and try to make this uh, uh, with, translating it with, but that is not the sense of the passage. It is not an, if it were an N plus the dative, it might be possible to translate it that way. But it is a dia plus the genitive. It is the same kind of construction you have in uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
It is, it is indicating means, the, the basis for something and not the cause or even association, the association idea such as, as with. So this is a, a very important particular passage to examine and to look at. We need to understand, though, that when we talk about by his own blood, just exactly what does it mean when it talks about the blood of Christ? Is this to be taken as a literal statement, or is it a, an idiom or a figure of speech in the original languages? We find this phrase in, in several passages in Scripture. For example, 1 Corinthians 10.16 says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ, referring to the communion cup? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Ephesians 2.13 But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we can see that the scriptures clearly utilize this phrase in crucial context relating to the death of Christ. Hebrews 9.14 states, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now just as as an Interesting aside, you have a relative clause there in the middle of the verse, beginning with the word who, down through God, who through the eternal spirit. If you were to take that out as a relative clause, you could pick up the main uh, argument of the verse by reading, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works? Now, if blood of Christ is to be taken literally so must the phrase cleanse your conscience. But we know that cleansing our conscience is a figurative phrase, although the word cleanse, katharizo, in many contexts may refer to a literal washing, because the conscience is immaterial, we're not talking about a physical scrubbing here with a physical substance. So there the implication, if if cleansing your conscience is taken as a a figure of speech, cleansing is not physical it, it, or literal, it is used idiomatically, so must the phrase blood of Christ. If one is literal, the other must be literal. That's the point that I'm making. So it seems that there is a basis for suggesting that the term blood of Christ is not a physical term, but is an idiomatic term in, that describes the death of someone. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 is perhaps one of the most important uses of the phrase where the writer states, because you know, it's a causal adverbial participle at the beginning, because you know that you were not redeemed. Redeemed means to be purchased from the slave market of sin. That you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So the point is that the coin of the realm that was used to purchase our salvation is the blood of Christ. 
But is this a phrase that should be understood literally, or is it a phrase that should be understood figuratively? In order to understand this, we have to go back and look at some basic verses in Genesis to understand the nature of sin, uh, the penalty for sin as it was announced by God in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2.17, the Lord said, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now, when we studied the physical doctrine of the physical death of Christ several weeks ago, we saw that the last phrase, you will surely die, was based on a Hebrew idiom which doubles the verb. It is a cal infinitive absolute plus the cal perfect of the verb. And I showed you through various uh, parallels uh, and other phrases where you have this same usage, the same word, same cal stem throughout the uh, Hebrew Old Testament used over, over 20 times that it doesn't mean have the idea of two deaths there. Just because they're two verbs doesn't mean they're two deaths. And somewhere along the line, um, there were some that came along and translated this, dying you will die. So that in English there would be a doubling of the verb indicating two deaths. But that's not only a meaningless English translation because in that you would have the first dying, which is a participle, that would refer to spiritual death. Well, we don't, the spiritual death isn't a process. It's a one-time event. We're, we're dead. We're not in the process of dying spiritually so that we die physically. It is uh, uh, the fact, simple fact that we are already dead spiritually that ultimately results in physical death. So the point is that is not that there are two deaths in Genesis 2.17, but only one death, and that is spiritual death. It states clearly that on the day, the instant that you eat from that tree, you will die. Not that there's a process, not that it is a gradual decline, not that one type of death will cause the other type, but that the immediate penalty will take place. And what happened when Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that he died spiritually. This was indicated by the fact that when God came to walk with Adam and the woman in the garden, they ran and hid. Spiritual death means separation from God. And so the immediate consequences, I mean the immediate penalty for sin was spiritual death. That's why it's important to distinguish between the judicial penalty... And the consequences of that penalty. And the judicial penalty was spiritual death. And the consequences then have a physical dimension. For example, when we looked at the passages related to the curse, we saw that one of the physical consequences of sin was that the serpent would no longer walk upright but would crawl upon its guts, that the serpent was said to be cursed more than, it's a comparative, more than the beasts of the field, indicating that, that it wasn't just, just that the serpent was cursed, but that all of the animals were cursed, but the serpent had an additional curse placed upon it. So that indicates a physical shift. Also that 
that women would now have pain multiplied in childbirth. There, there would be a physical shift in the way the woman's body functions so that there would be a monthly reminder of the fact that it was Eve and not the man who, who first sinned and that she, her role in terms of the uh, mandate to multiply and fill the earth was now cursed and that the man, on the other hand, would also be cursed, that there would be now toil, that he was created to uh, serve and to worship God, to guard the garden and to take care of the earth and that that was now going to be cursed because the planet... That nature would now suffer under the curse and there would be an antagonism between the man and, um, and nature. And then finally, we read in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground. This is the first mention of physical death. It is in the, 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 the curse the outline of the curse, which deals with the consequences for sin. Now, that's the difference. We have to maintain that understanding that the judicial penalty was spiritual death, but that there were physical consequences that related to the animal kingdom, that related to the woman, that related to the man, that related to their relationship with one another, because the woman would now desire to usurp the authority of the man, and the man would also operate in a tyrannical fashion in the home. This is the uh, beginning of the war of the sexes. And then there was also a curse on nature in terms of its relationship to man, and man's, man's relationship to nature would now be characterized by sweat and toil. It's not that all of a sudden man's going to start having to work after the fall. He always had responsibilities. That was part of divine institution number one but that subsequent to the fall, it would now be characterized by toil, by sweat. But now, in the midst of this entire list of consequences, there is the first mention of physical death, that he would return to the, uh, to the soil. And then, if you notice two verses later, there is an interesting statement by God. If I got this up here. Interesting statement that the Lord makes just two verses later. It said, Behold, a man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, that's, this is more than simply an implication that he could live forever. It is a clear statement that it was clearly possible that the that fallen man who is spiritually dead could hypothetically avoid physical death by eating from the fruit of the tree of the, I mean the fruit of the tree of life so that would indicate that physical death wasn't the penalty for sin or even part of the penalty for sin because it could be avoided by eating from the tree of life that's why it's important to distinguish between penalty and consequences. That the penalty was such that had such universal impact that it reverberated throughout the entire universe. It changed the very structure, the core structure of the universe. And that God, obviously, understanding the, the uh, dimensions of sin and the consequences of sin 
built the universe and built the animal kingdom and created everything in such a way that it had the flexibility within it to handle the chaos that came as a result of man's sin. But the main point that we need to make here is simply this, and that is that the penalty for sin is spiritual death, the consequences are physical death. So that when Christ went to the cross, as I stated earlier in the doctrine of the physical death of Christ, his physical suffering related to the physical dimension of the curse of sin. But that did not pay the penalty for sin. It simply demonstrated that he could have victory over the physical consequences of sin. That's why he dies physically, is to show that his, he would, through the resurrection, have victory over physical death. Through all of his physical suffering, he was demonstrating that under, with the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit and with Bible doctrine in his soul, he could endure and overcome the most extreme cir- circumstances and temptations and that the grace of God and the Spirit of God were more than sufficient for us to handle any problem, any situation, any difficulty in life because there is nothing that you or I go through that comes to the level of extremity of Christ's suffering or the temptation he endured to step down off the cross and to avoid the penalty for sin during that particular period. So if he could endure that under the ministry of the Holy Spirit and with the doctrine in his soul, he demonstrates that that is a sufficient base for the believer to handle any problem in life. So we see that in the Old Testament from the very beginning that the uh, problem was, or the penalty was spiritual death distinguished from the consequences of physical suffering and physical death. So what then was the solution? The solution is then outlined or indicated, implied in Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. See, the first attempt to solve the problem of sin was when the Adam and the woman sewed the fig leaves together in order to try to cover themselves and to deal with the exposure of their nakedness, which came as a result of the fall. And their solution was inadequate. It might have appeared to work on a temporary basis, but it was inadequate. God provides a more more permanent solution by obviously killing certain animals and teaching Adam and uh, his wife how to uh, skin the animals, how to tan the hides, and how to prepare them so that they would be suitable for garments. This isn't just the fact that he killed the animals, skinned them out, and somehow hung the clothes on them. He probably gave them a good lesson in uh, uh, taxidermy and in preparation and tanning of the hides, as well as in laying out a pattern and uh, cutting the garments so they would fit correctly, and then um, making shirts, pants, whatever, in order to be comfortable and to handle the weather and other aspects which weren't a problem before. But now that, now that there's been an environmental shift and other problems, that this would, would take care of them. And, and cover their nakedness and protect them from exposure. So, in doing that, there was the shedding of blood. 
Now that term is not used here in verse 21, but it is clearly implied. And when you come to chapter chapter 4, and you see that Abel brought uh, the firstlings of his flock in 4.4, and their fat portions as an offering to the Lord, that there has to be, or you can presume, that there has been some divine instruction on sacrifice. So in the Old Testament, there was the provision of animal sacrifices, and the Lord taught that to Adam and the woman in Genesis 3.21, so that you have the institution of the family sacrificial system from Genesis uh, 4 and following through the Old Testament. This is again exemplified in Genesis chapter 9, when uh, Noah and his sons come off of the ark, they have the extra animal, that's uh, of the clean animals. Obviously, God had given them some sort of revelation that there would be clean and unclean animals, and which was which. And uh, of the clean animals, they were to take seven on the ark. You ever notice why it was an odd number? It's an odd number, so there would be an extra one there to be used for a sacrifice. And they had a set up an altar in Genesis 9, and then they sacrificed to the Lord uh, indicating their gratitude for his deliverance from the, uh, from the penalty of the worldwide flood. And then you have another expansion of the idea of, of uh, sacrifice and animal sacrifice in the Levitical system. You have all kinds of sacrifices, uh, birds, uh, goats, sheep, cattle, all manner of different sacrifices for God. And then you come to another important passage in understanding this in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10 and following. And there we read, And any man from the house of Israel, or from the aliens who sojourn among them, that is, from uh, the immigrants who have come into Israel for one reason or another, or the descendants of the Canaanites, or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who eats any blood. Now, this is not referring to eating rare beef, folks. This is talking about drinking blood, eating raw, uh, drinking the blood itself because of its rep- what it represented. Anyone who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Part of the reason for this was in the pagan practices, that was part of what they would do, is drink the blood from the sacrifices. So God is contrasting Israel's worship with that of the pagans. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. This is the important statement. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood, by reason of the life, that makes atonement. Now, I want you to pay attention to that passage. First of all, we need to note that it makes the statement that the life of the creature is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. What exactly does that mean? It doesn't mean that the soul indwells the blood. That's how some people have taken this. It is, again, a figure of speech that indicates that blood is inherently necessary to maintain life. It is the tangible, concrete, visible evidence that there is life in the creature. So you can't see the soul. It's intangible. It's immaterial. 
So the blood, the presence of the blood, and there's also another indication. The Old Testament says there are two things that indicate life, blood and breathing. They're tangible, measurable, visible signs that there is still life, that the soul is still united to the physical body and that there is life there. But once there's no breath and, and uh, no blood, then there is no life. So the, life, the statement, the life of the creature is in the blood, is simply a, an inference or simply a mention, a tangible evidence of, of life in the creature. And then the second phrase, or the second issue is, that is stated is that the blood makes atonement for one's life. And the point that we need to observe here is that God has chosen the sacrificial blood to be the symbol of the redemption price for a person's life. When God says, I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar to make atonement for your souls, it doesn't mean that blood has an inherent value. It has value only because God says, I have given it to you for atonement. The phrase in the Hebrew is the cow perfect of the word natan, which is the Standard word for giving, N-A-T, and it doesn't have the dogish there, so it's almost pronounced like a T-H, like Nathan, Nathan, and it means, okay, back to verse 11. It's the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So it's not the inherent value of blood or the some sort of inherent value in the blood, but it is what it represents, that the blood represents the life, the life that is there. For example, when you go back and you look at a passage such as Genesis chapter 9, let me pull it up here for you, Genesis chapter 9, and you look at the... um, Noahic covenant, there's a warning. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In other words, don't eat things that are still alive. And surely I will require your life blood from every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And there we see that the phrase man's blood is really an idiom for life. Whoever takes a man's life, by, his, by man his life also shall be taken. So you see that the phrase taking, uh, taking someone's life or, or shedding their blood is an idiom or a, uh, a metaphor for taking physical life. It is not an em- emphasis on the fact that somebody bleeds to death. It is not saying when it says whoever sheds man's blood that that means that they have bled to death or that they have somehow uh, cut them. But that they have, uh, that could be by strangulation, they've still committed murder. could be by poison, they've still committed murder. It is a a clear statement, though, that that life has been taken. So we look at a passage like this, and if we 
we uh, look at it in the sense of that blood is a symbol of life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is blood as a representation of life that makes atonement. So what that's talking about is that is that when the animal's blood is shed, it dies, and that death represents something. Now it goes on to say in verse 12 of Leviticus 17, Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, No person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the sons of Israel, from the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting, catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. That means you take the blood out of the carcass. For as the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. And there, of course, you should know that when you see words in, the, in italics, then they have been supplied by the uh, translator to... Uh, they're not in the original language, but just to give it more significance and make it read better in the English. But in this case, the translator did an excellent job demonstrating that blood identifies it is a symbol it is not that blood is the actual life or the seed of the soul but that it represents that therefore i said to the sons of israel you are not to eat the blood of any flesh for the life of all flesh is its blood it is a representation and therefore it because it represents life blood is not to be uh is to be drained from the body as a sign of respect for life. So the conclusion from this is that blood is simply a tangible or symbolic representation of the intangible, imperceptible, immaterial presence of the soul, which is the key to life. Now, in the Old Testament, salvation was based on the anticipated fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah. And this was most clearly seen and evidenced in the Old Testament on the mercy seat. You had the Ark of the Covenant, which had a lid placed over it. Inside the Ark were three objects. You had the Ten Commandments. You had uh, manna, which represented the divine provision for sustenance. And you had Aaron's rod that budded, signifying... Uh, the authority of the Aaronic priesthood. Now, Israel broke the Ten Commandments. They rejected God's provision of manna, and they rebelled against Aaron's leadership. So each of these represented sin in the nation. Now, on top of the ark, there was placed this lid, which was the mercy seat. And on each side of the mercy seat, you had an angel, a cherub. And the wings of the cherub touched over the middle so that they faced one another. I'm not a very good artist, so you'll just have to excuse my stick figures here. So that the, and each angel looked down upon the mercy seat. The high priest would come in and place a bowl taken from the sacrificial blood of the unblemished lamb and would place that on the mercy seat. And when the two cherubs face that, and they represent the righteousness and justice of God, because everywhere in Scripture that you have the mention of cherubs, there is an emphasis on the holiness of God or His integrity. 
and it indicates that the righteousness and justice of, of God were satisfied by the shedding of blood, by the taking of life. So this, in turn, was a picture of what was to take place on the cross. It is not that the blood in and of itself was efficacious, but that God had assigned it that value. So this is the basis then for understanding a verse like Romans 3.25. In reference to Christ, it's tying together Christ's work on the cross with the analogy of the mercy seat. Christ, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation. Propitiation, hilasterion, refers to the mercy seat. That same word refers to the mercy seat. And it, and it means satisfaction, that, Christ, that God's justice and righteousness were satisfied by Christ's death. As a propitiation in His blood through faith. So we, now we see that blood is not talking about physical blood, but is a symbolic or tangible representation of death. When blood is shed, it means death. So what this passage is really saying is God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His death through faith. That this was to demonstrate His, that is God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He had passed over the sins previously committed, that is, in the Old Testament. So there was simply the anticipation of the coming Messiah. So from that we see that salvation through all the ages is by faith alone in Christ alone. And there was the anticipation which is pictured by the mercy seat and the sacrifice of the Lamb that was without spot or blemish. We must realize that the sacrifices in the Old Testament were not efficacious in and of themselves. They just had that temporary assigned value. For example, Hebrews 10.1, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form or essence of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. And then verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So it was simply that God the Father designed a plan whereby uh, people in the Old Testament prior to the coming of Christ could be saved by virtue of anticipation of the completion of that work. From this we see that the blood of the animals represented the presence of the animal soul and therefore the presence of life. The shedding of the blood represents the taking of life. So that the physical sacrifices were a shadow or a type of a reality that was yet future. It was used in the Old Testament as a visual aid, a training aid, to demonstrate the horror of sin and the heinousness of spiritual death. Over and again, God uses these very concrete images to continuously remind Israel of, of the extent of sin and the damage that sin has caused. That's why if you read through Leviticus and you read through all of the law that says if you do this, if you touch something that's dead, if you eat this or, or are exposed to that, then you can't go into the temple. You have to perform a special sacrifice before you go into the temple or into the tabernacle. 
It was designed to show that almost everything we do separates us from God. It's tainted by sin. Sin taints everything. And so in the same way, there was this emphasis on all this sacrifice so that the altar where there was a morning sacrifice and there's an evening sacrifice plus all the other sacrifices that people would come, that that golden altar, or the brazen altar, would be just encrusted with blood all the time. And there would just be probably a stench from that all around it. And that was to remind people of how horrible sin was and how horrible the payment of the penalty was to be. So the physical sacrifices were a shadow or type of the, of the reality that was to come. So what we have then in the Old Testament is that there is a physical animal sacrifice. We'll call it a PAS, a physical animal sacrifice, which is a physical representation of the physical human death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And as in line with all of the uh, previous teaching in the Old Testament, that physical human death itself is a tangible, concrete expression of the spiritual death that has already, notice I said already taken place on the cross as payment for our sins. You see, Christ's death on the cross involved two categories of death. We know this from two passages in Scripture. First of all, Isaiah 53.9. Isaiah 53.9, I don't have that on the overhead. Isaiah 53.9 says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. The Hebrew plural for moat, for death, he was assigned, he was with a rich man in his deaths because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Now, it's very possible on the basis of Hebrew exegesis that that could be what's called a plural of intensity or plural of emphasis. But because there is another passage in the New Testament that uses a plural, we know that... uh, that it indicates two different or two distinct deaths of Christ on the cross. Colossians 2.12 states, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And that word dead there is a plural indicating deaths. That there were two deaths on the cross, a physical death, which was related to the physical consequences of sin, as spelled out in the curse of Genesis chapter 3, and a spiritual death which paid for the judicial penalty of sin that was incurred immediately as a result of Adam's disobedience. So what we see, going back to the distinctions drawn earlier, is that just as there there was a spiritual judicial penalty for sin and physical consequences, the atonement of Christ on the cross 
shows victory over the physical consequences of sin because it pays the spiritual penalty for sin on the cross. Notice two verses in John 19. John 19.28, after this, Jesus, and then you have a causal adverbial participle, knowing, because he knew, that all things had already been accomplished. Notice it's all things. Had already been accomplished. That is the perfect uh, passive indicative of teleao. It is to telesty, the same word that he uses at the end when he says it is finished, indicating the completion of a past action. It has happened in past time. It is complete. Nothing more need be added to it. So before he dies physically, he knew that all things had already been accomplished. It was finished. The, whatever he, the primary task was on the cross, it was accomplished long before he died physically. So it is spiritual separation from God the Father. And so knowing, because he knew all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And then two verses later, in 1930, he says, it says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, to die, indicating that it is complete, nothing can be added to it. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is at that point that Jesus dies physically. He did not bleed to death. This is indicated by the fact that the soldiers are quite amazed that he is dead. Now, the idea that the, phys- that the term blood of Christ does not refer to the physical blood of Christ is quite amazing to some people, but there is strong, strong consensus among scholars that it is simply what I have taught, a, um, merely an idiom for life. For example, one writer in Kittle's Theological Dictionary of New Testament Theology writes, to shed blood is to destroy the bearer of life and therefore life itself. Hence, Haima, blood, signifies outpoured blood, violently destroyed life, death, or murder. In this sense, it is used of the slaying of Jesus in Matthew 27, 4 and 24, and Acts 5, 28, and of the prophets, saints, and witnesses of Jesus in Matthew 23, 30, 35, Luke 11, 50 and following, Revelation 16, 6, 17, 6, 18, 24, and 19, 2. The interest of the New Testament is not in the material blood of Christ, but in His shed blood as the life violently taken from Him. Like the cross, the, quote, blood of Christ, unquote, is simply another and even more graphic phrase for the death of Christ in its soteriological significance. That means that it's emphasizing the spiritual, it is a physical term that emphasizes the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. F.J. Taylor, in another work on, uh, on word studies, says the phrase, the blood of Christ, is used much more frequently in the New Testament than either the death of Christ or the cross of Christ, especially in Pauline epistles, Hebrews and 1 John. It is a pictorial way of referring to the violent death upon the cross of shame voluntarily enduring for men uh, by Christ, Romans 3.25 and 5.9. And then in another commentary, Charles Big writes, 
throughout this epistle, referring to 1 Peter, the writer dwells so constantly upon the sacrifice of the cross that the blood of Christ can mean nothing else than his death and passion. So there he's, all three are indicating that the term blood of Christ does not refer to the physical hemoglobin, plasma, red, white, corpuscles, uh, but uh, red blood cells, but to the, it is simply an idiom to refer to death, the physical death of Christ on the cross. So when we see that phrase, blood of Christ, what it reminds us of is the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. We go back and we, we take the analogy that we saw earlier that in the Old Testament, it related to the physical death of the animal, which itself is a picture or shadow or type of the physical death of Christ on the cross, which itself is a representation of what took place in the intangible realm of his spiritual death. So that, correctly speaking, Christ's substitutionary death on the cross is a spiritual substitution and not a physical substitution because physical death was not the penalty for sin but the consequence of sin. Therefore, the penalty for sin had to be paid for and it could only be paid by spiritual substitution. And the way that is applied to our lives is by faith alone in Christ alone. We can add nothing to it. Christ said it is finished. We don't add to Christ's work by our own emotions, by our own sincerity, by our own works or any other human factor, but solely because Jesus Christ paid the penalty in full on the cross with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the fact that that everything in Scripture works together and everything is in harmony and the Old Testament blends with the New Testament and the New fulfills the Old. Father, we thank you that our salvation is so complete that there is nothing that we can add to it, that it is all of grace, and that we receive it by faith alone in Christ alone. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning without a certainty of salvation or without salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. All you need to do is accept Christ as your Savior. You don't need to reform your life. You don't need to make a bargain with God, join a church, walk an aisle, sing a hymn, invite Jesus into your life or any other uh, factor, all you need to do, the Scripture says, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned and continue to use this to push us towards spiritual maturity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.